Good afternoon, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you are in the know. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the Internet at commonwealthclub.org. I'm John Diaz, editorial page editor of the San Francisco Chronicle, and your moderator for today's program. Today's topic is on the mind, madness, and gun violence. A loaded gun in the hands of an unstable person wreaked havoc almost 20 years ago here in downtown San Francisco, 101 California Street. Nine people died, including the lone shooter, and scores of lives were forever shattered. In the decades since, mass shootings have happened all across America. Columbine High, Virginia Tech, Tucson, Aurora, Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Most of these incidences happened with legal weapons, many in the hands of a mentally ill person. How can we predict and prevent violent acts in those who are mentally ill? What is the medical profile of a mentally ill person capable of carrying out this kind of violent act? How do the state and federal laws protect the rights of mentally ill people in the community at large? We will examine these challenges, challenging questions with our distinguished panel. Let me introduce them. Dr. Renee Binder is a forensic psychiatrist and professor at the University of California, San Francisco Medical School and founder and director UCSF Psychiatry and the Law Program. Dr. Binder's work is at the intersection of psychology and the justice system in research and practice. Her clinical work includes the evaluation and treatment of patients with schizophrenia, depression, bipolar affective disorder, and PTSD. She is the author of many studies covering violence and suicide risk assessment and criminalization of the mentally ill. She is an expert in the laws, particularly in California, that protect the rights of those with mental illness and those that restrict their access to weapons as well as the effect of those laws on risk management and the prevention of suicide and violence. Robert McMenemy is uh, Assistant Special Agent in charge of the San Francisco Division of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. For more than 25 years, McMenemy has served as FBI agent and attorney at headquarters in Washington, D.C., and several field offices, including the Los Angeles Division's Joint Terrorism Task Force. Currently, he oversees agent training requirements in active shooting scenarios and approves curriculum for internal security. Mark Fullman is a journalist and focused on politics and national security and a senior editor at Mother Jones. This past summer, he led an in-depth data investigation into mass shootings following the incidents in Aurora, Colorado and at the Sikh Temple in Wisconsin. His intention was to gather the facts, including learning how the FBI defines a mass shooting, who committed these crimes, and how many people were killed, where did they happen, why did they happen, and with what weapons. Carol Kingsley is a business and tax attorney and mediator here in San Francisco. She is also a board member of the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence that promotes stricter gun laws. She became a gun law advocate when her husband, Attorney Jack Berman, was among those killed by a lone gunman in 1993 at that mass shooting at 101 California Street. Jack was one of eight who died that day. Six others were injured. The shooter, a failed real estate speculator, carried several legally obtained weapons and eventually killed themselves as the police closed in on him. Please join me in welcoming our panel. Let me start by asking uh, Carol Kingsley one thing that you've taken from the horrible personal experience that you had to go through was to become a gun law advocate, so to prevent uh, occurrences in the future. Over the years, there's been some progress and there's been some setbacks. How would you characterize the state of, of gun laws in, in the United States? And, and is it moving in a positive direction in terms of gun control, or are we retreating? 
That's a very uh, provocative question, uh, John, but thank you for asking it. Before I address your, uh, your question, if I could, I would just like to say good evening to everybody and to thank the Commonwealth Club and uh, also Mellon O'Keefe for putting together this um, very interesting topic and thank all of you for being here to interested in this topic because that's what we need in order to make progress on this issue. So thank you uh, for everybody for being here, and, and it's really an honor to be here with such a knowledgeable um, group of panelists and, and with you too, John, and guiding us through this. So uh, thank you. Um, and, and now to your question, John. Um, I think that in terms of local and state government policies and laws and policies, we've made great strides over the last many, many years, uh, 20 years. Um, that, that's as long as I've been tracking it, and, and, and granted, um, I'm, I'm not coming from as extensive uh, of, of formal research on this, but the uh, Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, which was formerly, formerly known as LCAV, was formed um, sort of out of the ashes of the 101 California shootings. And this organization has truly been phenomenal and has been instrumental in getting hundreds of local ordinances and laws and policies established uh, throughout the country. So the action has been on the local and state level. And on that side, uh, I just would like to point out that there are several people in the audience tonight from LCPGV over here, staff members, the executive director, uh, Robin Thomas, and the uh, legal director, Julie Leftwich. And I point them out in particular so that if there are questions that we have regarding particular laws, there's an enormous amount of expertise in the room on that that we can draw upon in addition to ourselves. On the national level, it's been a different story. It's been very frustrating. Um, the attempts to get, you know, licensing and registration, uh, more sensible, uniform um, gun control laws has been uh, extremely frustrating, and it's uh, been very, very difficult to get um, action and to make progress on that level. Um, soon after the 101 California Street shootings, the uh, president signed into law, uh, President Clinton at the time, the assault weapons ban, which of course uh, had a sunset to it and is no longer, uh, was not renewed at the end of that sunset. Steve Spizzato, whose uh, wife uh, was my husband's client, was uh, shot uh, and, and died in this shooting as well. And uh, Steve, um, wrote a letter to the president on the night that that happened and really pushed, as well as he got a lot of help from the Bay Area and throughout the country, to get the assault weapons ban put into effect. But since then, the state of affairs after the sunset has been really rather um, discouraging. But I'm very hopeful there are people in the room today that are on this. There are, unfortunately, these um, very um, frequent, uh, massive shootings, rampages, that garner a lot of attention for people to work on this issue. And, and it's very unfortunate that these um, occurrences happen yet they bring attention not only to the problems that are unique to these random shootings, but also what is, in my opinion, the, um, an even greater, an equal and even greater problem, which are the, what, 35, 36,000 people that die from gun violence each year in this country, and they're largely in at-risk neighborhoods, and we don't hear about them. And I think that's where a lot of energy needs to happen on this, too, in terms of what we can do socially and, and uh, mental health-wise to help those folks as well. I thought it was striking, particularly after uh, 
Aurora, Colorado, and the massacre. I can't think of any, uh, any better word to uh, describe it than that. Uh, the silence of the presidential candidates uh, on both sides uh, there, it seems like the, the National Rifle Association has pretty effectively uh, stilled the debate in, in Washington. Uh, I, I, uh, as soon as that happens, you quickly have the NRA types uh, warning that uh, editorial boards and, and, and politicians are going to, quote, unquote, somehow exploit the tragedy by pointing out what was pretty obvious is that the, the gun capability that that shooter had really changed the dynamic of what happened in that movie theater. It's got to be frustrating. Well, it is, but then we have folks like Mayor Bloomberg who um, spoke right up, and um, uh, I think that that was uh, very heartening. Um, and I think in terms of Obama, uh, we know between the two candidates um, where we have a chance. Mark Fullman, I'd, I'd like to get you to weigh in on this subject because in your uh, September uh, story in, in Mother Jones was covered a lot of territory, I highly recommend it, uh, on the whole issue of uh, mass gun violence. Uh, you had some observations in there about the way in many states uh, gun controls actually been going in the uh, in the wrong direction, and particularly, I was struck by your anecdote about Virginia. Uh, maybe you could talk about that. Sure. Um, well, and a quick comment about the uh, political leaders in the wake of Aurora. Um, you did see President Obama and Mitt Romney and other political leaders make comments in response to that event. But if you look at the language they use, it's interesting. The focus is pretty much entirely on grieving and national tragedy, you don't hear anything about policy and what might be done about it. Uh, I think that says an awful lot about where we are in the political discussion of gun laws in the United States. Um, as far as uh, our data project, Mother Jones, um, investigating mass shootings, um, an important component of that was looking at laws, and I think that is one of the more underreported stories in the national landscape on this issue. There are a lot of state laws that have come to pass just in the last four years. Uh, we actually built uh, an interactive map documenting them. And I have to also acknowledge here the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence on, on this in particular because their, their research and data on that front is really valuable to us. Um, we did some of our own additional research, but I don't think we could have gotten our arms around that project without their work. And what we found was uh, 99 laws across 37 states in the last four years that are, have rolled back gun regulations, um, either in terms of possessing guns, carrying guns, um, and also several making, uh, making it harder for the government to track guns. And I think, John, you're referring, with Virginia, referring to the one there where they, they passed a law recently um, that made it no longer a requirement for sellers of handguns to report those sales. And not only that, they, they also, the law also uh, mandated the destruction of all previous such records, which I think is a pretty fascinating measure of, of where we are in terms of some of the legal efforts around guns. Robert McMenemy, uh, I'm curious in the, in a, from a law enforcement perspective as to whether you think these laws actually make a difference. Um, first of all, thank you for uh, uh, inviting me to participate in this forum. Um, I do actually think that uh, the laws do make a difference, uh, um, especially compared to where we are now, where we were back in 1993. Um, however, I think we do have a, a way to go. Um, the Brady Law, for example, um, where there's the instant background check for uh, gun buyers, um, there has been success in preventing people with felony records or fugitives from actually purchasing weapons. So I do think that that's actually a positive. Do we have a ways to go? Um, yes. Dr. Binder, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, certainly uh, one of the problems is the capability of these weapons. Another is the people whose hands they get into. And certainly although we people have criminal records, they don't necessarily have a public record that we can check in terms of their, their mental fitness. Um, forensic psychiatrists have, have sorted the types of people who uh, 
who commit these kinds of crimes and are mentally ill and capable into three categories. There's psychopaths, there's the delusionally insane, and the suicidally de depressed. Do you agree with those categories? And, and what, what do we know about who is likely to commit this kind of mass killing? Well, before I answer that question, I just feel I need to say something. So I'm a forensic psychiatrist, but I'm also a psychiatrist, and I treat a lot of patients who have mental illness. Um, mental illness is very common um, in the United States. There was recently a report by SAMHSA. That's the um, government agency that deals with substance abuse and um, mental health issues. And they said that 20% of Americans um, have had some sort of mental illness this year. So, you know, one-fifth, one-fourth of Americans have some sort of mental illness. And um, I think it's very important not to stigmatize people who have psychiatric issues. It's so common. I mean, many of us have depression, have anxiety, um, just have problems in living and have had times where we have obsessive thoughts or um, we just are just very, very depressed, very tired, lose our appetite, just have a lot of different symptoms. And I think it's very important in having these sorts of discussions to point out two very important things. First of all, most people who have a mental illness are not violent. So just because people have a mental illness does not mean they're violent. And this is very important because people who have any kind of a psychiatric illness are subject to stigma and are subject to discrimination. It may be hard to find housing. It may be hard to find employment. And most pe people say, I don't want someone who has mental illness who's living next to me because they could be violent. Or I don't want people with mental illness to be in the workplace because they're going to take an assault weapon and come in and um, attack the whole workplace. This is very rare. Most people with mental illness are not violent. And then the other point is that when we look at violence, most violence is not committed by people with mental illness. People who have mental illness are responsible for between 3 and 5% of violence. So that means when we hear about violent acts, 95 to 97% of the time it is not related to mental illness. So I just wanted to start out with those two points. Um, in terms of this small group of people who do commit these horrible crimes and who should have weapons taken away from them um, if we can predict who is going to commit violence. Um, certainly people who are suicidal, people who have a history of violence on the basis of paranoia where they have delusions or they're hearing voices or they're clearly um, psychotic, um, we don't want those people um, to have access to weapons, but we just have to um, be very careful about that. Is there a, and Robert McMenemy, uh, you may be the one to uh, answer this. I'd like to hear you on this too, uh, Dr. Biner. How do we identify who is in that, as Dr. Biner says, very small category of people who are not only mentally ill but, but uh, prone to violence? How do we identify them, and then how do we get past the legal threshold of actually being able to intervene? Do you mean? Sure. Um, what and then I'll go. What uh, I would think should be looked at is like uh, potentially we have the privacy aspects with the health care and HIPAA and, and, and that to be concerned about. But I think that the medical profession like in these type of situations where they may have an individual that they're very concerned about and their stability and what they may do uh, in society is that there should be like um, a safe harbor provision for them to like contact local police or federal authorities uh, that, you know, patient A, you know, I'm really concerned about this person. He's talking about purchasing guns in doing something bad. That way um, law enforcement may be in a position to actually address that issue. Um, and then at the same point, the professional is actually protected from any sort of uh, liability issues. I'm not sure what Renee's thought on that is, but no. that's one. 
think that thing i think that could be looked at yeah well let me talk about what the law is in california um since nine hundred ninety there has been a law that if an individual is admitted to a psychiatric hospital on an involuntary hospitalization because they have a mental illness and they're deemed to be a danger to themselves or they're deemed to be a danger to others that just by that very fact um, those patients are reported to a national data bank and they are not allowed to purchase a gun or to own a gun for five years on discharge from a hospital a patient is given a notification that they have been reported they are given the opportunity to appeal it and they can go to superior court or after they're out of the hospital they can write to the department of justice and say i feel that i've recovered and i need my gun for something but those categories of people are restricted from owning a weapon or from purchasing a weapon but that's a fairly small group of, of people, isn't it, Dr. Binder? And we look at what happened in Columbine. Certainly those teenagers were not identified ahead of time as a potential threat. Uh, Aurora, Colorado, it seems like there are a lot of, a lot of questions as to how do we identify, or is it even possible? Well, I think we all have a responsibility in identifying people who are potentially violent. I think one of the lessons from what happened in Virginia Tech is that Mr. Cho did exhibit some signs which were of great concern. Um, and people weren't talking to each other. Or people were very concerned about confidentiality. And, and I think we do um, have educational efforts, even with college students, and this is around suicide or around violence, that if you are afraid that your roommate is going to do something to someone else or to themselves, don't say, I can't say anything. You need to tell someone about it, whether it's the RA, whether it's the teacher, um, whether it's you know, someone in, in student health, that we have to do educational programs to encourage people to talk about it, that this is a, a responsibility. I think the problem is that we overpredict. And you know, I think we can um, think about whether that's a good or a, or, or a bad thing. Um, a friend of, of a colleague of mine who's a forensic child psychiatrist told me that she gets a lot of referrals to evaluate children in school. There was one child, she said that he was eight years old, and he was writing on his desk. He carved out the word bomb, B-O-M-B, just as he's sitting there bored, you know, B-O-M-B. And the school took it very, very seriously. And what they, they told him, he could not come back to the classroom until such time as he had an evaluation by a child psychiatrist to decide whether or not this was a serious threat and if this meant that this little boy was going to be coming in with a bomb. And, and I think that's a policy decision. Is that, and, and the evaluation was done and the kid said, I'm, Sorry, I, I was bored. I was being, he didn't use the word, but you know, I was sort of being provocative and I didn't know any better. Um, is that a good thing? Because even though we're overreacting, we probably will identify the very few individuals who actually might be violent, or is that a bad thing? Because we really are casting such a wide net that um, we are interfering with a lot of people's lives by doing it. And I think that's just a question that we need to think about. What are the professional ethics for you as a psychiatrist, uh, 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 Dr. Binder, in terms of if you see somebody who is expressing either anger toward a specific person or anger in general, suicidal thoughts, uh, is that, I, how do you wrestle with that? Because certainly you don't want to be in a position where you're subjecting your, your patients to some uncomfortable scrutiny from law enforcement or maybe even abridgment of, of their Second Amendment rights. Uh, how do you have, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the first step is if someone expresses homicidal ideation or violence, um, ideas about violence, is to do a violence risk assessment. If someone says, oh, I think about hurting myself sometimes, you don't just let that go the obligation is to do a suicide risk assessment. 
And uh, that is a whole process. You, you just said to me that you were going to hurt yourself. I need to talk to you more about that. Tell me what you mean by that. Are you serious about that? Um, in addition to ideas, do you have a plan for how you would do it? Do you have a means for how you would do it? Do you have pills at home? Do you, are you thinking about taking knives you know, from the kitchen? Um, have you thought about the consequences of it? And, and depending on the answers to those questions, we either take it seriously or not. And the same thing with violence. I always feel that if someone tells me those issues, they can keep it to themselves. By telling me, they want me to do something about it. And depending on how serious it is, at that point, I need to decide what interventions I need to take. And there might be um, multiple interventions, including calling the police, if that seems like the most appropriate thing. I mean, when you call the police, they say, what do you want us to do? You know, um, that, you know, have they done anything yet? You know, we, we call, anyway. But, um, you know, there are lots of interventions. You might want to increase the number of sessions. You might want to put someone in a psychiatric hospital. Um, you might want to involve people who live with the patient or who love the patient and help take care of them. Is this serious? What are we going to do in terms of keeping this person safe, working together? And most importantly, working collaboratively with the patient and saying, we don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. And I assume that by your telling me, you don't want this to happen either. So what can we do together to keep you safe and to keep other people safe. And each situation is a little bit different. Yes, Robert Minami, and then we're going to want to go to Mark Fullman of, of Mother Jones. There's a couple questions. I, I would just like to add that uh, that scenario you outro can just apply to the workplace, too. So if you have an employee that actually has said some things that disturb a coworker or a supervisor, your company should have a structure where uh, that worker, that employee can be talked to either by a supervisor, working with uh, your legal counsel um, and HR to provide some sort of resources for that employee to get them help. Um, for example, a lot of government agencies, and I think in private agency companies as well, um, we have a what we call a employee assistance program. So we have dedicated people that have some sort of training with dealing with people that exhibit some sort of like uh, imbalance and they go out and talk to them, make sure they have the resources available to get them either to uh, medical help or, or whatever is needed. And by that way, you can kind of be like proactive and address it before it actually goes to the, the doctor level. Mark Fullman of uh, Mother Jones, one of the many uh, issues that you're uh, our, your research, your article looked into was how many of these cases that you studied, there were some signs of, of uh, mental illness. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's very important clearly to acknowledge that predicting and preventing violent behavior in people with mental health issues is, is, very, is very difficult. Um, but that said, I think, you know, we can look at the data that we collected in our research and reporting and see some very, um, I think, clear patterns that, that tell us something about how to start thinking about this in terms of, of potential policy solutions. Um, one of the things that we found, I, I was just looking back recently, the last couple of days, we're still in some ways working with our, our research and um, I went back and with the help of one of our great researchers um, to see how many of these cases, in how many of these cases there were where the, the perpetrators had exhibited signs of, of mental illness or violent tendencies. And we found that 30, 38 of them in 61 cases had demonstrated some serious signs of it, um, either expressing um, violent desires, uh, paranoid delusions, serious depression, things like that, that people knew about. Um, now, there's, there's a gap between, I think, that knowledge and, and the ability and, and wherewithal of people to do something about that, um, both in terms of the legal framework and the ethical framework. Um, but I think that tells us something very strongly about the type of situation that leads to these events. Um, another data point that I think 
speaks to this is the number of murder-suicides that we found in these cases. There were 35 out of the 61 cases where the perpetrators took their own lives. Um, and there were another seven cases where the perpetrators died in police shootouts, which some uh, criminologists and law enforcement experts refer to as presumably suicide by cop. Um, in other words, these perpetra perpetrators were in situations they knew that they would never survive. Um, so those uh, very, I think, um, prominent patterns in our data set tell us something about the type of person that's going to commit a crime like this. Um, getting to the point where we can predict that or prevent those people from possessing weapons is, is a different set of questions that I think is a, a big challenge. A reminder that you are listening to the Commonwealth Club radio program. Uh, we are talking about gun violence and mental illness with Carol Kingsley, who lost her husband in a mass shooting here in San Francisco. She is a board member from the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. We also have Dr. Renee Binder from the University of California, San Francisco Medical School's Psychiatry and Law Program, FBI agent and attorney Robert McMenemy, and Mark Fullman, a senior editor at Mother Jones, who's been doing a series of reports on mass shootings. Let's get, we have some terrific audience questions, and I'm going to start by really combining two that, that make the same point. One, uh, it alludes to uh, Dr. Binder's comment that really only 3 to 5 percent of, of uh, violent acts are actually committed by someone with uh, mental illness. And the, that speaker's or audience member's question is, what about the other 97 percent who are not mentally ill? Is it our culture of violence? And another question along the same veins goes, across the world, the prevalence of mental illness is more or less equal yet the prevalence of gun violence in the United States is significantly higher than any similar country. Doesn't this suggest that it is too easy to blame people with mental health conditions for gun violence in our society? Uh, Carol Kingsley, I'm sure this is something, an issue that you've given some thought to as you've uh, studied and advocated for, uh, for gun laws over the past few years. What is it about our culture that that has so much more gun violence than the rest of the world? Is it simply the prevalence of guns? I don't know if it is so much the, um, the number of guns, uh, but there is a love affair in this country with guns. It's part of the fabric of our country. Um, and the... It, it's, it's pervasive. It's, it's every place. Um, our entertainment, the entertainment we produce, I think, is more violent than um, the entertainment in general produced by other countries, um, in other countries. Um, certainly, the statistics for this country in terms of loss of life and injuries is so far off the chart when compared to um, England and Western European countries and Canada uh, that you really that it, that, that it really does provoke um, you know thought on this uh, and, and that it's it's a really uh, extremely um, great question you know to ponder you know in reaction to what Dr. Binder um, to, to your statistic in terms of three to five percent of violent acts are people having mental illness. I would be interested to know, um, you know, more and explore more about the definition of mental illness within that study. We talked a little bit before this program around definitions and, and what Mark was was working with and, and his study, but. You know, in San Francisco, in the, the police department, their experience is, um, you know, quite a bit higher in terms of mental illness being a factor in the calls that they respond to. And I'm wondering if the um, definition or the level of uh, mental illness is defined in such a way that, that, that it is 
at a very high threshold in terms of that definition. And I would um, question whether or not, you know, the earlier statistics around one in five people at one time in their life um, having uh, mental, uh, a mental problem or issue, you know, in any one year, whether or not that comes into play in this country on a daily basis in communities of high risk where there may be a disproportionate number of guns um, and, and, and violence in terms of day to day survival. And so I'm, I think that there may be this a combination of, in this country, the availability of guns, the culture of guns playing together, as well as um, mental problems of a sort that don't necessarily rise to the mass murder, um, these very visible occurrences, but result in these shocking statistics that we get day to day of people being killed on our streets. You've raised a, a couple of really good issues I'd like Dr. Binder to, to weigh in on, because at what point does the very act define that there's something mentally wrong with, with somebody? When you see something like the uh, Aurora, Colorado shooting, uh, whether he has been clinically diagnosed as being mentally ill, I mean, how can someone who's not mentally ill uh, commit a violent act of that nature? So when we look at people who have committed those types of crimes and you evaluate them and you say, yes, they have mental illness, um, that's true. But that is not the same thing as saying of the huge population of people who have some kind of mental illness that those people are going to be committing crimes. I mean, there was the um, National Institute of Mental Health Epidemiologic Catchment Area Study, you know, with 17,803 subjects in five communities, and they were studied for rates of psychiatric disorders, and they got data on violence on 7,000 subjects. They defined violence as using a weapon in a fight, engaging in a fight that came to blows with other than a partner or spouse. So they eliminated domestic violence you know, from the statistics. And what they found was that patients with serious mental illness, schizophrenia, major depression, bipolar disorder, were two to three times as likely as people without such an illness to be violent. And what that meant is that the lifetime prevalence of violence among people with these illnesses was 16% compared to 7% among people without mental illness. So it's certainly more. And if you add substance abuse to it, so the combination of mental illness plus substance abuse, especially um, drugs of abuse such as amphetamines, methamphetamine, cocaine, some of the things that we have on the streets right now, which can certainly cause violence without any mental illness, the um, horrible um, epidemic right now of bath salts and of just, that's what they, they call them, some kind of um, uh, drug that has an amphetamine-like substance in it, which is very easy to get and it is associated um, with violence. Um, a few years ago, the drug was, um, phenyl, uh, was PCP, which was another drug that was associated with violence. So it's mental illness plus substance abuse. Now, that's not saying when we have homeless patients on, on the street who have some um, mental illness, and um, many of whom also have some problems with substance abuse, that they're not going to get into scuffles with police. What about uh, the issue that uh, are the questions from the audience raised about, about the culture of violence in this country, and particularly some of the uh, cultural influences? For example, uh, the Columbine killers uh, not only played extremely violent video games, there were some who have suggested that they were actually practicing their, their assault and, uh, on video games. What kind of factor is that for people who, who may be predisposed to uh, uh, because of mental illness to, to commit violent acts. Dr. Breiner? Yeah, yeah it, it's ahead. definitely a factor. I mean, a lot of kids watch violent video games. It's, unfortunately, it's quite prevalent. Most of those kids are not going to be violent. But for kids who have that propensity, 
Um, there are studies that show it can make it worse um, with all the things that we have on the Internet. After the Columbine shootings, there were also copycat shootings. And actually, the press did a very nice job, very, um, were very responsible um, in terms of not um, putting all of those in the paper and publicizing them. Because one of the um, reasons why people commit those crimes, especially if they feel victimized or they feel worthless or nobody pays any attention to them, is really to get the publicity. With after the Columbine shootings, the shooters were on the cover of Newsweek and of Time. You could just see some kid in a small town saying, I want that too, even if I have to die in order to have that. So I think the, the press has to be careful about that. John, if I could just add one thing to this Please. too. Um, Mark Foreman. I think that this part of the discussion also points to the issue of accessibility to guns, how easy they are to get. The Columbine case is actually um, a, a fairly rare example in our data investigation where the, the teen perpetrators got their weapons illegally, but we found that in the, the 61 mass shooting cases in the last 30 years that we studied, 80% of the weapons were obtained legally. And I think that's a point that can't be overlooked in the discussion of, you know, what is it about our culture that is so violent or that leads people to do these kinds of things? Well, part of the answer is they can get guns very easily in a lot of cases. I want, I want uh, Robert McNamee to, to weigh in on this in, in terms of how the law enforcement perspective. We, we've been hearing from Dr. Binder about, you know, that you have uh, folks who, who – are potentially dangerous, albeit a very small percentage of, of, uh, of people actually commit violent acts. We hear about the uh, accessibility of guns. Can law enforcement protect us from this kind of thing? Uh, I mean, that's uh, that's a very hard question to, to, to answer. Actually, it just depends on the whole circumstances of what the the situation is with that individual and what contact that law enforcement officer may have. If it's um, you know, disturbing the peace uh, on a street here in San Francisco, um, the, the law enforcement official, you, you know, may do some, you know, initial work, but just because of the way the judiciary system works, he, he or she would know that that person probably wouldn't get charged and would be out in the street again. Um, if it's a more serious crime like burglary or, you know, uh, a physical assault on somebody, then law enforcement would be able to take a more proactive, uh, you know, approach to that individual. But it, it's actually a very large problem that, you know, that the policymakers need to decide, you know, federal, state, and local. Do you, do you, if, go, go ahead, Carol Kingsley. If I could just add to that, um, uh, one of my other hats is as a San Francisco police commissioner. And um, within the last year, the San Francisco Police Department has uh, started a crisis intervention um, training program so that police officers can receive additional training in um, detecting um, persons that have mental illness when they are called and how to um, handle folks with mental illness um, to de-escalate the situation. And so there is, there are attempts being made, you know, to, to kind of grapple, you know, with that and to try to de-escalate it in an appropriate way and perhaps use different approaches in order to prevent that person from being triggered and going off and, and, and hurting people. One of the things we often hear uh, after uh, in particularly a mass shooting uh, is if only somebody in the audience or at the movie theater or if so only somebody at, the, at that shopping center in Tucson, Arizona, where uh, Gabrielle Giffords uh, was shot, if only somebody had a weapon, maybe it would have had a much different outcome, a citizen having a weapon as opposed to uh, a trained law enforcement officer. 
I'm interested, uh, uh, you looked at that issue in your research, did you not, Mark Fullman? And what did you find? Yeah, so um, I got more and more interested in exploring that question as our, our um, as we started publishing some stories in this in this series, uh, because I was seeing that kind of pushback a lot in comments and emails on social media. That's a, a and then with a little bit of research, I found that's a, a pretty common argument you hear um, after a mass shooting. If more people had guns, somebody could have stopped this. And um, meanwhile, we have a, a legislative landscape that shifted in the direction of a lot more people carrying weapons. There are a lot more concealed carry permits now than there were just a couple years ago, and that, that um, information is covered in, in the, the map and study we did of, of the 99 state laws that I referred to earlier. Um, so we looked at this question, you know, what does the data tell us about, about this, this argument? And uh, for starters, the, the 61 cases that we studied, there isn't a single incident of an armed civilian attempting to intervene. Um, in other words, no shooter has been stopped that way in, in our data set of mass shootings in the last 30 years. Um, but we looked beyond that, too. We looked at shooting rampages um, that involved lesser number of casualties but still similar types of events in, in public places, in shopping malls, school shootings, et cetera. And it was very difficult to find any examples of armed civilian intervention um, there, are, there have been a few in the last couple decades, and the results are very mixed and, frankly, um, quite tragic in, in several cases. There were, there were two in 2005 where armed civilians tried to intervene, and, and one of them was very gravely wounded, um, was comatose in a hospital for weeks, eventually recovered, uh, didn't stop the shooter, obviously. And in another case, which uh, took place in Texas, the, the civilian who tried to intervene was shot and killed by the perpetrator. Um, so there's really no evidence at all indicating that this is a good idea. And I, I haven't seen anybody in law enforcement say this is a good idea. I, I'd, I'd be, be interested yeah, I, in hearing Bob weigh in on this, too. <laughs> I was going to add some things here. Yeah. Uh, I'm make sure a, you have a view on this. <laughs> it, it would make a law enforcement's job actually more difficult because in a scenario like that, they would not know who was good or who bad, who was bad, and it would divert them from the real threat, who was doing the bad action. So I would say no. So you would have that problem, I, I suspect. Uh, you would also have the problem of, uh, unlike a law enforcement officer who would have, have training in a, a situation like a crowded movie theater, a lot of chaos, smoke, uh, would, would be much more likely to be effective than somebody who just uh, was packing the way. That's correct. I mean, the law enforcement go through these training scenarios, you know, for a you know, confined situation, so um, where the good citizen may not, may actually hurt innocent bystanders, actually. I, I just wanted to add, I, I had a number of people write to me after we published our initial investigation saying, oh, well, you know, if I was in that Colorado movie theater, I would have pulled out my Glock. I could have taken that guy out. Well, look what happened in, in New York City in August with the gunman who was at the Empire State Building. You had New York City, trained New York City police officers who were there on a counterterrorism assignment taking out this gunman in a chaotic, crowded scene and wounded nine innocent bystanders. So if, if that happens when police are operating with training, what's going to happen when a civilian who has no training tries to do it? That's a really good point. Um, here's a question that we actually talked about uh, when we were waiting to come in. So, uh, Carol Kingsley, I'll let you start off, and I know uh, – Several of our panel members have uh, thoughts on this. And the question from the audience member is, since it's so difficult to achieve gun control, would it be better to address the sale of large clips that hold 80 bullets, et cetera, or put huge taxes on ammunition? Uh, would that be a more effective way to curtail gun violence? Carol, your thoughts? By taxing large... Or, or somehow restricting, you know, uh, controlling the ammunition as opposed to the gun. Well, that, in fact, attempts have been made in that direction. And, um, you know, I think that um, approaching it from an accessory um, uh, perspective in addition to the guns themselves, um, it can be a very effective way, you know, as to whether or not the specific suggestion made here um, would um, – Pass, you know, get adopted um, is is another question. Um, there are there are a number of instances of this type of legislation that has come up, and 
I guess we're just about out of time. But for the person who asked that question, there are some experts right over here that would have um, a more complete answer on that. Let me get some thoughts. Dr. Binder, I believe you were talking about the need to um, somehow control, go after the ammunition, uh, especially as we've seen in, in Mark Fullman's reporting elsewhere, you have situations where these killers are getting their ammunition in bulk off the Internet. I think anything we can do to see that people don't have lethal weapons um, that are being used for these kinds of purposes, I mean, we should, we should approach it in any direction that we can. Here's a question uh, in terms of the uh, politics of it. Uh, with such a conservative Supreme Court, what could really be done on the federal level realistically to have a national agenda pursuing the illegality of particularly assault weapons? Carol Kingsley, as you noted, that's been a very much a point of frustration. We had uh, Senator Feinstein in for an editorial board not long after the uh, Aurora shooting, and, and she, uh, of course, has been was one of the original sponsors of it and has been very frustrated over the years. I don't think that that's, that's finished. Hopefully that is going to resurrect itself in the next four years and progress will be made in the next four years on that front. Here, here is a, a suggestion that can anything be learned or taken away from the success that, that that the society has had in taking on big tobacco. You know, there are a lot of similarities here, such as suppression of research, the, the problems with online sales, uh, particularly, um, you know, keeping, uh, you know, sort of putting a stigma on, on uh, tobacco. Uh, any thoughts from any of our panel members on whether that might provide some, some thoughts or maybe even a template for uh, what, what might be done with guns? You're nodding your head, Dr. Binder. That means yeah, it's a wonderful first. idea. Again, I think we should approach it in, in multiple ways. I mean, it used to be that it was nice to have a cigarette. I mean, there were movies where the you know, movie star would have cigarettes. It made him strong or her very sophisticated to have a cigarette. I mean, now it just looks terrible. I mean, it's not sophisticated for a woman to, you know, if there's something wrong with her um, in movies um, if she's not having um, a cigarette. People use seatbelts now. I think we do have to have a whole public relations campaign. And rather than it being strong and the Marlboro man and the frontier person, as Carol was saying, that it should be someone um, who is kind of a, a, a vigilante in the negative sense or who's going around and possibly hurting innocent people or having the potential to hurt innocent people. I mean, we have to have negative impact on carrying guns, and I think that could go a long way. Question from the audience for, for you, Mark Fullman. Uh, with the power the NRA has over Congress in this country, do you think change will come from, might come from international pressure and or new technology such as be, uh, using GPS uh, to track guns. Um, Mark, your thoughts? I mean, it's sort of hard to imagine this Congress being moved greatly by uh, international pressure, like, gee, look what France is doing or <laughs> your country. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think politically speaking, that's a non-starter. I don't think what other countries are doing will have any influence here that, that um, you know, when you put that up against the enormous um, financial and lobbying power of the NRA and, and its allies. Um, that said, I think, you know, some people argue now that the, the NRA's power is overstated. It's sort of treated as, as this monolithic um, force in, in uh, politics around this issue. Um, I think that they've been remarkably successful uh, for a long time now in, in fomenting a political stalemate around gun laws. Um, it, everything pretty much defaults to a discussion of constitutional freedom. Um, and there's a lot of, of presumption baked into that, um, you know, if, one of them being, well, if you're, if, you, if you're interested in reasonable gun regulations, that means you're anti-gun, that you want no guns. Well, that's ridiculous. There are many, many people, many 
gun owners in this country who want reasonable gun regulations, and that's been proven out in recent polls. It's, there's one that has been publicized widely recently by the um, Mayors Against Illegal Guns, uh, Michael Bloomberg's group. They had a Republican pollster, Frank Luntz, go out and poll NRA members and uh, also non-NRA members and found an overwhelming majority of, of the, the population they surveyed, including a lot of gun owners, were for reasonable gun controls. So I think uh, the political polarization of the debate is a very uh, big challenge in terms of trying to move forward. Um, I think, you know, some of the ideas we were just discussing here a few minutes ago about starting to try to change the image of guns, um, come at it from as many ways as possible, legislative, culturally, um, I think that would reflect the complexity of the issue probably uh, better than saying, well, you know, we're going to try to comply with international law or what have you. Um, at the end of the day, there are a lot of guns in the United States, and uh, that's not going to go away anytime soon. So I think it's, it's more a matter of um, how we live with them and regulate them in a way that's reasonable and works best for, for society. Uh, for politicians to take that on is, you know, a different set of questions, and there hasn't been a lot of political will to do that, at least not recently. I'd be interested to hear uh, Carol Kingsley's uh, uh, take on this, since you've been uh, on the other side of the NRA on a lot of, of issues. Uh, myself, as somebody who is in a uh, business that uh, uh, we get public comment and feedback every day, I mean, my impression of the NRA's effectiveness is, is not only that they are absolutist, but they tend to be single issue. It doesn't matter what a, a member of Congress does on other issues. If he's voting the wrong way on guns, they're going to try and, and take him out. And the other thing I noticed about the NRA is is they are very active, their, their membership, about not letting anything go unchallenged. I mean, if we ever get uh, a deficiency of letters to the editor, all we have to do is write an editorial about gun control, and our <laughs> inbox will be full the next day. <laughs> I'm interested in your, your take, uh, Carol. I, I think you summed it up very well, John. It, I, I think they're um, extremely um, strong in their efforts and their coordination, and um, Unfortunately, uh, the vast majority of people that are in favor of um, sensible gun regulation, um, it, it's hard to be heard above the roar, even if it's the smallest, smallest measure that's being thought of. They will come down in force and um, fight it. Robert McMinnemy, I'm interested in you weighing in, uh, going back to the uh, original audience question or the previous audience question, where they talked about technology and how that can can help in, in crime fighting. Uh, certainly you have a lot of experience at the FBI and other high levels of, of law enforcement. How has technology helped in your career in terms of, have you, have you seen it help in terms of uh, uh, combating gun violence? Um, not actually combating gun violence, more like more tracking it. Tracking, yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, uh, the uh, question, putting GPS uh, devices on guns, I mean, uh, I mean, law enforcement doesn't have the, the personnel available to actually, like, the number of guns that we have in society, we wouldn't be able to do that. I think that would to... probably be a political non-starter, too, Correct. how nervous people get Privacy. even about a a yeah. fast track tracking their bridge tolls. Uh. Right. So, but like, you know, uh, East Palo Alto, I know they have like the technology where, you know, gunshots are going off in the neighborhood. So they'd be able to track where violence is being, you know, occurring. And that actually has assisted communities like that in trying to identify violence and be proactive and trying to reduce it for those neighborhoods. That, that, that shooter uh, spotter is a, a system that's in place in San Francisco as well. And um, while it is uh, helpful in general, uh, my understanding is that um, the um, equipment needs quite a bit of perfecting too Correct. because there are, um, uh, there, there are things that will sound like False gunshot. positives, if you will. False somebody, positives. Somebody yes. Like sets the off Fourth a firecracker. Yes, yeah. right. Fourth of July. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, Fourth of July. <laughs> needs perfection. Perfecting. Okay. Um, a question I think uh, 
uh, might be best suited for Dr. Binder, and that's uh, uh, shouldn't we also be looking at examining the mind of the American people who are growing seemingly ever more complacent and or powerless in the face of these deadly shootings? Uh, how would you diagnose the uh, behavior of the public at large in terms of uh, its uh, desensitization <laughs> to these uh, issues? I'm not sure I can answer that. Um, I, I think it's a Put general, America on the couch, right, Dr. Right, putting Mike. America on the couch. Some people actually become quite paranoid. I, I, I don't know if I agree that people are complacent about what's going on. And I think that... Um, you know, certainly you see it in parents who are super careful about what could possibly happen to their kids um, and, you know, what could happen on the street, what could happen in school. Schools do have drills um, if there is any potential violence. I know um, I work in a hospital and we have all sorts of codes that are put over the loudspeaker and that go on our computers and that give us alerts on our cell phone if there's any kind of a, a terrorist concern or a bomb concern or a shooter concern um, so that we can, um, everyone knows what's going on and can communicate about it. And I think people are encouraged to look for packages and to um, be alert to what's going on around them. So I'm not sure that we're complacent about it. What do you think, Mark Fullman, and in, in your reporting, both the, uh, the reaction that you got from, from Mother Jones, uh, from the, the article from your readership, but also along the way in terms of your reporting, did you get the sense that, you know, Americans have, have kind of given up on the thoughts that they can seriously control guns? Well, I don't know if I can answer that question either, mm -hmm. but um, a couple points I would raise related to that. One is that when these mass shooting events happen, you know, that tend to be the most high-profile gun violence in terms of media coverage and attention, um, you'll see Another common response you'll see is, is uh, and, and usually coming from pro-gun conservatives, is this isn't the time to talk about gun control. You know, there's still blood on the pavement. We're, this is a time to, to grieve and acknowledge a national tragedy. Um, but if you look at, uh, there, there was an interesting um, piece written by a media scholar, Ethan Zuckerman, uh, after we published our initial data set, where he looked at um, search trends for gun control and found an interesting relationship between spikes of interest in gun control and mass shooting events. In other words, it's his data, which I think was a bit rough, but nonetheless suggestive, told us that, uh, no, this is precisely the time we should be talking about gun laws when, when people are focused on it. So I think an, another thing that we found in our, in our investigation is that the rate of mass shootings um, by our criteria has increased in the last couple of decades. And as they happen more and more, I think people are paying more attention to them and are more uh, disturbed by them. Um, how we get from that point to action in terms of our political culture, in terms of policy making, I can't answer. But it does seem to me that um, we're looking at a trend as there are more guns and there are looser gun laws being put in place and there are more mass shootings occurring. Um, society is becoming more aware of that and, and that's got to lead somewhere, hopefully. Unfortunately, we have reached the point where we have time for just one more uh, question, and given that we are a few days away from an election, it's not surprising that it is about the election. Uh, Carol Kingsley, I'll let you get in the last word here, uh, and that would be uh, how do you think the election outcome is going to affect uh, regulation of guns in this country? We not only have the presidential election, we also have the House and Senate elections as well. Federally. Thank you for the question, whoever wrote that question. Um, I'm going to answer it in the way that I hope things will play out. Um, I think that even though we haven't seen a lot from President Obama in the last four years on this issue, I think we've seen enough to know that he, of the two candidates, is more likely to um, promote sensible, uniform gun laws in this country 
and that he has the um, he has what it takes to um, push that if he chooses and to make things happen on that front. So, in 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 and if it is um, Mitt Romney, I don't think that there are the same kinds of opportunities for a uniform um, gun legislation in this country. Um, I do think, though, that if President Obama, when President Obama is reelected, that there has to be a very concerted effort among the majority of people in this country that do want licensing and registration and a ban on assault weapons and sensible gun laws, I do think it's going to be incumbent upon them to get together and to work on it. In terms of the states, um, I'm going to pass it on because I've already probably said enough. I I really don't know enough about the specifics on each state to evaluate that. But there, there is a website that you can go to Go ahead. It's to make it easier, because we've been talking about LCPGV um, several times tonight. If you plug that in, or the old name, lcav.org, you can get more information on what's happening in states in terms of what exists and what might come. And we can be sure if Mitt Romney is elected next Tuesday and hears this program on public radio that NPR's but subsidies will really be in trouble. <laughs> uh, anyway, please uh, join me in thanking uh, Carol Kingsley, board member from the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, Dr. Renee Binder from the University of California, San Francisco's Medical Schools Psychiatry and Law Program, Robert McMenemy, Assistant Special Agent in Charge of the San Francisco Division of the FBI, and Mark Fullman, Senior Editor of Mother Jones, We also want to thank our audiences here and on radio, television, and the Internet. I am John Diaz, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place to go when you're in the know, is adjourned.